0: You're listening to In Her Voice, a podcast brought to you by Women in Hollywood. I'm your host, Melissa Silverstein, and this podcast is dedicated to supporting and amplifying the voices of women who work in the global entertainment business. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Maureen Ryan. She is talking about her new book, Burn It Down power, complicity, and a call for change in Hollywood. I love the title. You are a best selling author.
1: Congratulations on that. There are not enough times that I can hear that. I don't know if that's a terrible statement about me, but no,
0: (laughs) you've been working on this
1: book for years.
0: So moat can, can I, should I call you Mo, Maureen? What do you Steve, like? Mo is
1: fine. So, mm-hmm. what I ask the filmmakers when I chat with them is give me the log line for your movies. Give me the log line of your book. The log line of my book is if you think that Me Too and other reckonings fixed Hollywood, you are not right. You are mistaken.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And yeah, that's the shortest elevator pitch I think I can do.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are things in your book that happened before Me Too, there are things in your book that happened after Me Too. Me too is just a kind of giant line in the sand, a before and an after to me, and that didn't mean that the systems got fixed. And I think what no. what Me Too did was really reveal the systems, take them from behind
1: the the cloak of darkness into the light. Right, and honestly, I think. But what's what's arisen is a new set of systems to minimize the revelation process, if you will. You know, Ooh. I mean, high profile lawsuits. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not commenting specifically about it, but how many times have we seen someone who did speak up and speak out that survivor facing the onslaught of either, you know, online abuse or, you know, legal complications or coverage of them that is just, you know, terrible in the extreme or all of those things. So, yeah, um, right. it's horrible. It's interesting that I think, you know, Hollywood is ever adaptable. And one thing I talk about a lot, I talked about it a little bit in the book, but, you know, Hollywood can voluntarily reform. Yes, it could. Like the, H- the Hayes Code was a voluntary reform that Hollywood undertook in the third, like sort of gradually, but in the 30s it had taken hold, and that was a voluntary change that enshrined racism and homophobia. So, like it can, it can do these things, but I think it's, it's you know I'm a sci-fi nerd, so hopefully this analogy will work for people, and if it doesn't, I'll explain it a little bit. Hollywood is like the Borg. You know, the Borg is this. Relentless enemy that they face in Star Trek shows and films. And they have this ever changing sort of armor, you know, mm-hmm. some kind of projecting armor. The same kind of weapon won't work twice, it just yeah. adapts. And so I kind of feel that that's how Hollywood is. And, you know, that's not to say that my book is hopeless. I hope you didn't find it so. Your opinion is a great deal to me because you've been doing this for so long. What I wanted to say was, I'm not hopeless, I talk to a lot of other people who are not hopeless, but what I do want to take away is the magical thinking goggles that a lot of people wear. And the higher up you go in any organization, there's either more gaslighting, more denial, more magical thinking, or more simply more protection from reality. You know, you're Mm -hmm. in a bubble the higher you go in any sort of industry agglomeration. So what I wanted to do was take away the following, and I think me too was definitely crucial for what I'm about to say, and and that is things that were treated as inevitabilities were not inevitabilities. They never were. They were the result of active decisions that people made and wanted to treat as inevitabilities and fate. And it had to be that way. Well, we couldn't have. No, all of these things could have been avoided. All of these things didn't have to happen. And I think that's actually, in a way, that's a huge stumbling block for some folks. It certainly can be for me because when Me Too came along, I think for some people, eventually it kicked in their sort of denial protection mechanisms even more than ever. Because if you say that coercing an actress um, who wants a part and coer- coercing her psychologically, financially, sexually, you know, assault, like. If you say that that was wrong starting in 2017, well, we can't say that. It was always no. wrong. Always wrong. You know, for for, an act, for anyone of any gender to be coerced, manipulated, abused, assaulted, to have financial vindictiveness played out on them. And that's a huge thing. And I think we're weirdly one of the codified things that grew out of Me Too is so, frankly, diseased. And that is, well, so-and-so isn't a Weinstein. So it's, I mean, so the subtext is, so it's okay. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, that's bad. We shouldn't have serial rapists around, you know, doing things and doing whatever they want. But at the same time, you and I have talked to a million folks who have had their career prospects ruined, you know, by false rumors, by people talking, you know, telling lies behind their back. It's bad if someone has to recover from trauma. I'm not minimizing that. It's also bad if people can't pay their bills are ejected from the industry, not because they're bad at their chosen work, but because people are just essentially enacting vendettas on them. Yeah. So there are a lot of things that can be wrong. And yeah. being Weinstein is one thing that's being wrong. Being Cosby is, is wrong. But there are so many other things that are wrong, and we yeah. we don't just get a free, get out of jail free card oh. when someone's like not that, you know. It's
0: gradations. I mean, it's a system, but the system is made up of people who make choices, and you can be you can have the will to change. Mm-hmm. You could be a person who never did this before you could be a showrunner took his dick out in the writer's room all the time or a guy Mm -hmm. who takes his dick out when you're going for a part or you're in a parking lot all the time all the time (laughs) you make those decisions and you should lose your job and and that's
1: the thing like you know this stuff is not rocket science and that's the other that's the thing i I wanted to say it is not it's not. I mean, I like. I live out here in the Midwest. You know, flyover country, capital of flyover country. And day to day, yeah, I do know some. You know, working writers and directors and whatnot. And there are productions here in Chicago. But like, day to day, I'm not in the industry. Like, that's not like my everyday life. When I go yeah, to the store, or go to a school meeting or whatever. And so, knowing so many people who work in so many fields, you know, including my spouse where they're just like, wow, I would be fired like today yes. if I did that. And yes. and and that's what's crazy. And this is what I'm trying to dispel. And I know that you've tried to dispel it. And I hope, I think actually the heartening thing about the response to my book, and I, I would love to get your take on this. I don't think it would have hit the same way five years ago. Oh, I, don't, I definitely not. don't think I could have even done it 10 years ago. That would I don't not think it would have been, been published. I agreed, I think people weren't ready for it, but I think what the last six years have done have demystified the industry as a place of work. It's a place of work. Yes. You know, One of my favorite moments of the last few years was when I did this big interview with Jeff Garland, who has a, shall we say, interesting approach to workplace behavior and norms. And so two years ago, I did this interview with him. He was at least willing to get into it with me and we talked for almost two hours. I published it, Vanity Fair. And at one point when I felt like I was beating my head against the wall in that that conversation, I just said what sprang to mind. And that was, Jeff, this is somebody's workplace. And someone said they wanted to make a bumper sticker of that. And I would like, I would put that on my wall if they did. So true. That's what I think people are realizing now. Don't you think like the average person walking down the street understands that like, if you're a camera operator, if you're a director, if you're an actor, you're doing a job you're doing it 10 to 12 to 15 hours a day you're oftentimes not making bank from it but it's a it is a workplace i mean mo it's only
0: a decade on for people realizing that no women fucking directed any movies in hollywood so you know
1: we're the continual surprise thing that's always like golly gee how did that happen people have been pointing that out for a long time and this is one of my things that I, I wish top companies would say, the bulk of the industry is now controlled in, in North America, certainly, and certainly in the US, by a, a few large multinational corporations. Yes. So it's not and the stock market. And and so if someone like Scott Rudin were to come back, it he only comes back if they decide he comes back. And that's an act of decision. And sometimes what I wish, you know, like when The Flash came out. What I wish companies would do is, in general, when these situations happen, just set, put out a press release saying, um, "We don't actually care about the welfare of our employees, or we don't care about the safety of our workplaces and sets. We really just care about potentially making money, and potentially our executives having access to better compensation, more power, and more money. Like that. Like just just make it plain that that's what you care about most, and stop sending the press or putting out to the public." you know, Oh, we care about this. We care about that. If you actually don't take steps and active decisions are made, must be made daily to make that a reality. If you're not going to do that, then just stop pretending. Like this is the thing that drives me a little bit crazy about the industry, which is, but I think that this is changing. There is the perception that somehow these workplaces are better than the norm. Because these are artists, these are creative people. So the perception is, here's a group of people at this studio, in this production company, on this set, they are devoted to some kind of creative and or artistic endeavor. So therefore, we will sit there and give them the benefit of the doubt, which is actually a kind impulse on our part, is the public. It's a kind impulse to say, we will give these people pursuing a creative act the benefit of the doubt. Well, the industry took that benefit of the doubt out behind the shed and beat it the shit out of it with a tire iron because it doesn't deserve the benefit of the doubt at all, especially because the most vulnerable within it, financially vulnerable from historically marginalized groups or in any other way, powerless, which is most people, it generally speaking, treats them like shit or the potential for treating them like shit always is looming somewhere around the corner. Yeah.
0: So what was the story that you heard that just broke your heart more than any other that's in the um, book? Whew.
1: That is, there would be, there would be, I guess, a number of accounts of what occurred on Lost, yeah. the television show Lost. That, that whole chapter was a, a stab to my heart on like, a, for years because it was like, I had loved the show and I had covered it quite a bit. And there was a feeling of responsibility. You know, I mean, whatever. My my amount of coverage is like one molecule in this vast entity known as the coverage of Lost. But like, it was heartbreaking because I felt an emotional and psychological affinity for the show. And I had helped it in my own small way succeed. So I would say Lost, learning what occurred on Sleepy Hollow, delving into how that occurred. And then I, I would have to say it's like a triple tie for first talking to Jane Doe and what I want to tell your listeners about talking to Jane Doe is that she's funny she's so smart Jane Doe she she filed a lawsuit against um, who Saturday Night Live
0: well okay the Saturday Night
1: Live so she 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 filed it against former cast member Horatio Sands Lauren Michaels NBC Universal and sort of like up and up the food chain and so I spent, I've probably, you know, I've spent at this point, you know, many hours talking to Jane, and that's obviously not her real name. Mm-hmm. She brought a civil action in August of 2021, alleging a number of terrible things, including assault by Sands. And you know, I also put in the book something else that she alleges that, a, you know, an NBC page took her into a stairwell. And, you know, I'll let readers, you know, kind of like read that passage for themselves, but she's still struggling with how to characterize. And even in our conversations, I think there were, you know, some ambiguities, some, some non ambiguities, such as what was the culture of the show like, and based on my conversations with her, but also I just did so much research. And again, there's an emotional affinity to SNL that I have, you know, I grew up watching it. And so it's just, it's, it's incredible to me to know that this young woman herself an aspiring comedy writer creator you know that's really what she wanted to do was become a comedy I don't know like write for a show or you know be be, write write jokes write sketches that sort of thing and she I don't believe pursued that professionally because not and not because she couldn't have been good at it because when we talk she's really funny and really smart really witty but You know, she's now, from what I understand, not associated with the industry in any way. And then, you know, you take someone like Nicole Bahari, and she said, you know, there's a very specific choice I made in the Sleepy Hollow chapter. And the last voice you hear is that of Nicole Bahari. I have never spoken to Nicole Bahari. I did not do any interviews with her while Sleepy Hollow was on the air. I mean, I was in I saw sort of like panels and things like that, but I had no dealings with her for the book. But it was absolutely gutting to talk to people who worked on that show about what occurred and talking to Orlando Jones, who, you know, one of many people who was just brave, brave enough to just use their names and talk about these things that occurred. And, you know, wrestling with my own, I don't know, someone the other day, in a kind way said that I shouldn't be using the word complicity about myself because to this person I was talking to, they said, complicity implies someone knows something is happening and And doesn't do anything about it. And I, but I...
0: We are as a culture are all complicit because we are part of the ecosystem that watches Mm -hmm. these things, that loves these things, that loves the people who makes it. It's just... I feel like it's the gaslighting for all of us, right? That makes us complicit.
1: Yeah. And there was, as there is right now for me, a set of incentives to, you know, when that little voice speaks up in the back of your mind, like what's what's this about? What's happening here? Should I question this more? There are many incentives for me as a journalist or critic or writer covering the industry or reporter to like keep that voice down. What the industry itself did, and it's funny, cause it's like, you know, what radicalized you Mo Ryan? I don't know, covering Hollywood, honestly. Like I wasn't, you know what I mean? Like, I don't have any regrets about coming into the industry with enthusiasm and joy, which I still have for certain people within it, for certain projects within it. But what became apparent to me over time was And I've, you know, as you know, like I've been doing reporting on inclusion issues for more than 20 years. Like this is not, this was never a new thing for me. Like, you know, when people are like, what, there's no, we're not giving jobs to black directors. Like no shit, Sherlock. Yeah, no, I've been a lot. Some of us have been writing about this and beating that drum for a long time. So I think I'm just continuing the work that I began doing when I was, you know, after the last writer's strike in 2007, 2008, I wrote a 6,000 word piece for Huffington Post with stats saying that the, the percentage of women writers at that point had never been above 27%. It was usually around 24. It had gone down to about 15. Yeah. So whatever progress women made and, and people of color made in writers rooms was more than destroyed by the strike because... There was a big regrouping, and a big reshuffling, and guess who got hired? And guess who hired their friends? The usual suspects. That'll probably so, happen again. So it will probably happen again. You know, there, everyone's talking about there's going to be a retrenchment. There is a retrenchment going on. Who does that retrenchment affect? And one of the biggest things I'm concerned about right now, and I get into in the book, in the IP chapter, but also elsewhere, whatever systems of apprenticeship, mentorship, and learning pathways that people had so that they could... Go direct a Marvel film. So they could go direct that tentpole movie or become the winner of that IP driven project. Studios are more nervous than ever about who they're giving the control of that material to. So they want to go with someone with a proven track record. Well, who's that going to be? So everything that the industry does, it's just, again, it's that shape-shifting thing of like, there are now people who've been in the industry, um, people from historically excluded communities, who've been working their way up the ladder for 10 or 12 years and have never set foot on an active set. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. Yes. Because no one at a big studio is going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Although they did give the guys running the Lord of the Rings TV show, a billion dollar show. Those guys had been in the industry from everything. I understand. They seem to be nice people, (laughs) but they didn't have any experience, but just what two white guys got control of that show. What are the odds?
0: Yeah, it's, you know, we do this work, I do this work, because I want to see different kinds of stories, because I want to see different kinds of storytellers. So that's how you have the optimism, which is like, as a person of privilege, of white skin, I'm saying like, I don't want to only see white people. I don't want to only see white stories. I think my world will be richer, you know, selfishly, my world will be richer if I know other things. I want other stories to be out there. So that is kind of like my true north, which is like, how do we bust up what's ever happening here, mm-hmm. do it differently, smaller, probably to bring in new storytellers. But the industry puts up roadblocks everywhere you can go when you want to just do something outside the structure. So you just have to, you know, have belief that it makes a difference. Whatever your piece is makes a difference.
1: And oh, that's completely. kind of how I
0: get through the day.
1: Yeah. And I, and a big thing I've struggled with in my reporting, and this is one reason I wanted to write a book was because there is a lot of ambiguity and also I don't know everything. I don't know everyone. I'm not walking onto every set. And even if I was, not everyone would want to talk to me or have anything, you know what I mean? Like, so I don't, you know, when people, the last few years, cause I've been doing so much of this work and I'm sure you get this a lot too. Well, has it changed? Has it changed? I mean, a lot of top executives, honestly, they want to know from kind of like a boots on the ground reporter. I do think people care. I do think people want it to change. But the way I view it is exactly what you said. If you are the DP, you can mentor someone who's not from the same old crowd of usual suspects. You can make sure that you're hiring on your camera crew differently. You can make sure that your union or your guild does have mentorship and opportunities for people who are not from the usual areas. But I think for me, what really, a true north for me is this, the more power, the more protection a person or an entity or a company has, that's where I put more of my responsibility expectations. Yeah. So yes, people can make different choices as people, but in the trenches, a lot of those people don't have don't have any power. Have any, like And again, they can make the choice to be a decent, humane person, make the choice to be accountable when problems come up. I do believe that those choices make a difference. But the more protection and the more power and the more access and opportunity someone has, the more I'm putting it on them. You know, the, the head of production for Warner Brothers is way more powerful than a line producer on a six-episode show. Let me ask them- you this
0: question. So one of the things is that people work like gig. It's a gig. Everything's a gig. Ooh. So you have no protections. So yeah. when you work on a television show and I work for a, a production company, say Disney, am I an employee of Disney for whatever months I am on that show? Or am I, what? what's my employee status? Am I an independent contractor for Disney? Because, like, even if you're an independent contractor, for and I sign independent contractor agreements, you can't, you can't do shit. So mm-hmm. any agreement that people sign, aside, you know, in films they create these entities that don't really exist in life, and yep. people sign yep. agreements with these things. How about everybody be a part of an employment structure
1: mm-hmm. where there is accountability? I couldn't agree more. And you know what? Hollywood has always been the champion of buck passing. Oh, well, it wasn't, the studio doesn't, it was actually the the network was supposed to hire more, like what I always call it like the Olympic of buck passing. And as you say, there are all these companies and entities that you really work for. And so one thing that I talk about in the book is like, here's the thing, frankly, given how capitalism operates, I don't think they're going to stop doing that. What I do think is that pressure points can be activated and those pressure points can be the media. The pressure points can be guild and trade unions of all kinds. The pressure points can be other kinds of collective actions. And the pressure points can be, you know, reporting structures that the studios don't control.
0: Yeah, and so there has so
1: that to be, be media.
0: accountability structures.
1: There and there so has- a, big, a big one that I talk about in my book, that has not yet, to my knowledge, come to pass. I do mention, you know, Women in Film has a hotline. The DGA has a hotline. All these, there are reporting portals for different entities. Time's Up imploded. Who didn't see that coming? I wanted to believe it would work. I didn't really think it would. Anyway, it didn't. The Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, I will say, is still in operation, and I don't have a negative view of that. As far as Time's Up itself, that's A whole thing, and if you want to get into that whole giant mess of messes, you can. But anyway, an organization founded around that time was the Hollywood Commission. It had Anita Hill as the the chair, and Les uh, Moonves, (laughs) Kathleen Kennedy was part of it. I believe it's still an entity that exists. But so they they said in twenty twenty, hey, in twenty twenty one, we're going to open this independent reporting portal which I have long thought would be a game changer, a really robust, well-supported, well-publicized independent reporting portal that could catch people who move from job to job and studio to studio in this gig economy. I was like, yeah, do that. The industry needs that. And so they promised that it would come out in 2021, it wasn't around. I asked them multiple times last year, where is it? They said, oh, we're gonna do beta testing third quarter of 2022. If that happened, I was not made aware of it. And now it's a year after I began asking them, where is this independent reporting portal? You know what they announced last year? We're doing another study of like, whether there's you know all of these biases and problems within the industry. I don't fault the idea of wanting to chart how things are going. I don't think we need necessarily another study as much as we need a robust independent reporting system because, as you know, every single person in the industry doesn't trust Studio HR, and they shouldn't, and I understand no, it. They, you know, they, like, look, a stopped clock is right twice a day. Sometimes it does, things go the right way when you go to HR, and you don't set your own career and life on fire if you go to HR. But as we both heard a million and one terrible stories about going to Studio HR, and regardless of whether the studio executives in charge of that HR department and or the people who work in that HR department, they can all be wonderful people who have the best of intention. The fact is their paychecks are being paid by the top studio executives. So they know how their bread is buttered in this independent thing. Where is it? Yeah, I mean, mean, Anita Hill
0: is one of my All time heroines of the world. And, you know, it seems like she was able to take on Clarence Thomas more than she was able to take on the Hollywood industry.
1: And here's the thing this is what Hollywood does. Hollywood says, oh, golly, gee, we're going to change. Let's form a committee. And then what happened? Where is it? I mean, I actually, what I should say is that I've been busy with book promotion. So I can't 100% guarantee that I'll do that. But at some point, I hope to circle back with the commission and say, you know, you said that you'd be road testing this and you getting it ready. And, you know, you had wanted to make sure it was all legal and legit and useful and all that. So you said it would be beta tested last fall. Did that happen? Yeah. When is it going to be rolled out?
0: I think what we'll say is anyone who is listening to this, who knows anything about the Hollywood Commission, get in touch with either one of us, and we Mm -hmm. will happily share that information with other folks.
1: Yeah, I think there's so much about the industry, which understandably is performative. It's an industry of performers and storytellers, but keep that to the page, keep it to the performance space. You know, like, like I don't want a performance of, golly gee, I feel bad about X. Okay, cool. I do think words can matter, but they only matter if they're backed up by action. Mm-hmm. So this gauzy thinking about what creativity is, how certain people need to behave to access their creativity. And this is, you know, as I've done this sort of press tour for the book, I do get this question a lot of like, well, you know, there are scandals in this industry. I'm like, yep, that's true. If I walk into my local grocery store, I do not think that the grocery store manager looks at the people ringing up my food items and says, you know, Jill won't be able to ring up those foods unless she's verbally berating people. Like, she won't be able to do a good job as a cashier unless she's behaving in a toxic, abusive, threatening manner. Like, I don't think that that's an expectation in any other, like, in creative industries, though, and it's honestly, it's fashion, you know, art, there are certain things that are accepted as creativity that I would argue never were, and I'm not saying artists don't have baggage, they do, and... They should. That's fine. I want I want you to look into your baggage, open it up, rummage around, create an incredibly moving yeah. story or a thrilling adventure or whatever it is you're going to create, but like the idea that I as a creative artist need to enact a damaging pattern of behavior on other human beings around me to
0: me feel who better,
1: the story that I want to tell is nonsense. It's bullshit. It's all-
0: it's it's all, it's all bullshit. And even the people doing it know it, but they get away with it. And I think until people hold other folks accountable in mm-hmm. a structure and there's a will from the people in power to want to see a different structure, right. then we'll always have people who are abusive. But then Absolutely. there are the people who are the good eggs. And we should also just encourage people, you know, find the good eggs, find the people out there who are going to respect you and who are going to help you with your career. I believe in the theory of abundance that there are many successes out there. And the more successes, the more successes there will be. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. Hollywood trades in the scarcity model, which is like, there's only one job for one person and I'm not going to help you because that means I'm not going to get the job. And that's just a really sad way to live. And But the industry encourages it. You know, Uh, it does, it does, which is why
1: you pit it against each other, right? Yeah. So don't
0: pit people against each other, you know, work together, don't work against each other. And until people
1: figure out that lifting someone else up lifts you up too, Mm -hmm. it's always going to be. And also that enabling abuse, how does that help your career? Because first of all, that could come out in the press and damage your image. And second of all, you know, there are people who. Whether or not they themselves experienced an abusive environment or dynamic, and most people, frankly, in the industry have at one point or another, they are making a different choice to not enact those patterns. And I've I've seen plenty, and part of what I wanted to get at was a little bit of a corrective to my own work and also how the media approaches this stuff. It's like, yeah, it's not clickbait that Melinda Shue Taylor sends out this email that is so Thoughtful and inspiring and transparent about goals and working methods and norms, that, you know, like I, I want to celebrate that. That's what
0: normal workplaces do.
1: Yeah. Like yeah.
0: I, I work for a college. we're on a film festival. We have goals. We talk about it to each other. We're respectful. This is, you can do it. It is available. But this industry does not want it for some
1: reason. And here's the thing. What some people have said to me, like, oh, why don't you write about the agencies? I'm like, I don't know what else to say, except all they do is multiply everything terrible about the industry. Because agencies are part of the array of people and companies that are incentivized to cover up bad behavior. And again, there are these incentive structures. You know, If somebody on Wall Street is making their shareholders rich, their behavior is going to get covered up too. So I understand that it happens everywhere, but around every successful person with a, t- a pattern of damaging and harming others and a clear record of not giving a shit about the damage they create there are so many people following along in their wake, making a buck off of covering that up.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mo, you probably have enough for another five books in this industry. I want to sure. just thank you for being on this beat, for for doing the work, for uncovering and for supporting people. It means a lot. And, you know, now that people know, people notice. It's it's in our world in a way where it's just like, okay, we're going to shine a light on the bad, but we're also going to put some good work, some work towards what could be, you know, what the the
1: world we want to see and that we want to live in. I will leave you with, honestly, what keeps me going is that there are so many people making choices, making active decisions to lift up other people to create and sustain accountable and professional and nurturing workplaces. That's what's heartening about a lot of people wanting to buy this book and read this book it's lovely to have this wonderful response for me emotionally but the bigger picture is that the audience doesn't want people to be harmed they don't want to consume entertainment and and know that people will routinely and now they know
0: that i mean that that has been removed and that's the really good thing that's happening thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode we would love for you to share with a friend or better yet, follow us on Spotify and give us five stars or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Spreading the word really helps us reach as many people as possible. You can also subscribe to the Substack for the Women in Hollywood weekly newsletter of all content buying about women that is opening and streaming. You can sign up directly at womenandhollywood.com. In Her Voice is produced by Leonie Marsh. This is a Women in Hollywood Productions podcast. I'm Melissa Silverstein. Until next time, goodbye.